0: You're listening to a DM podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the new series of Heroes and Howlers. It's me, Mikey Robbins, and my mate, Paul Wilson. Hi, everybody.
1: Look, we're both still a couple of history tragics, but this season, it's not just us doing the heavy lifting. That's right, Mikey. This season, we've got special guests picking out their very own heroes. And howlers. (laughs) Yeah, we're still on the lookout for those weird bits of history that have surreptitiously changed the course of mankind. And we're still uncovering the cock-ups, those moments of madness...
0: Have made the world what it is today. But now we've got backup, and together we'll be turning history back to front and back again.
1: Hey, folks! Paulie here, we're having a great time on season nine. Great having all these new guests on. But we're just going to have a break for a couple of weeks, so we're going to go back, and hopefully, you'll enjoy some of our classic episodes from the past few seasons. And then we'll be back with some new guests to round out the year. G'day, folks! Now, there's been a lot of bubble talk recently here in Sydney during the lockdown so we thought it might be a good idea to have a look at some bubbles in history of course you know particularly the financial bubbles the, with a term that's come synonymous if you like with the old speculation mania and, and cock-ups, mate and let's face it it pretty much all starts with the dutch It does start with the Dutch. That's right, Mikey. Tulip mania is the first one, isn't it? Back in the 17th century, because you've got to remember, at that time, the Netherlands, it was really in a golden age. Uh, It was the world economic powerhouse. It actually had the highest per capita income in the whole of Europe. Um, And it also had the most sophisticated financial markets and the trade bourses in in Amsterdam and Rotterdam. Um, Now, it probably won't surprise you if I tell you that the top three Exports at the time were gin and herrings and cheese. Mate, three of my favourite things. (laughs) But if I told you that by 1636, the fourth biggest export coming out of the Netherlands was tulips, you'll realise why we're talking about them today. Yeah, that's right, mate, because it's around this time in
0: the early 1600s that tulips first make their appearance in, in gardens and vases of Europe. And it seems the Dutch were first in on the act when their ambassador brought some prize specimens back from the Ottoman court in Constantinople.
1: And, you know, like any new trend, um, they are very expensive. They've become the height of fashion, and they've got that intense colour, of course. But another reason why the tulips were so expensive is because their flowers don't last that long. You know, They only usually last for a week or two. And to get a flower from seed actually takes up to 12 years but fortunately it's around this time that they discover an easier way to propagate tulips via the bulbs rather than the seeds and because every time a flower dies the bulb underneath the ground it sprouts these little buds and you can dig these up um, in the autumn and transplant them in the winter ready for the following spring so mate this is almost tailor-made to create one of the world's first futures markets Exactly. Yes. So you've got the flowers that come up in the spring. People go along, see which ones they like, and they start ordering the bulbs to be dug up um, in autumn. And so even before a single bulb changes hands, we've got these contract prices being set and certificates being traded, as you say, like a futures market. Now, this pushes up the price even more. And then the kicker, there's this thing called the mosaic virus which hits all the tulips in the Netherlands at the same time. Now, normally you think a virus is a bad thing, but this mosaic virus is that one that gives them all those split variegated colours, you know, all the fancy tulips. So suddenly you start getting all these fancy breeds, fancy names. But the problem is the virus also slows down propagation. It's now taking about two or three years before each bulb will flower again. So the best tulips are getting rarer and, of course, once again, more expensive. So that by the time we get to this key year of 1636, Mikey, a single tulip bulb for the rare breeds will set you back the same amount as 10 times the annual income of a skilled artisan. So, mate, this is all happening in 1636. That's right. And by the time the harvest comes in that year, these right-to-buy Certificates, they're changing hands as often as 10 times a day. When suddenly, out of nowhere, the whole thing collapses. We're now in the winter time, February 1637, and this is when they have all their big bulb auctions. Suddenly, in Amsterdam, at the bourse, there's not one buyer.
0: Now, is this because they got you know, the jitters over the prices that, that were being asked?
1: Well, no one really knows, Mikey, that's the thing. It might even have been an organised boycott because of the high prices that are being charged. But not one person makes a bid. There's a complete refusal to buy and panic descends. You know, everyone's desperately trying to get rid of these certificates. And within days, the whole market is in tatters with just as many fortunes that are being made that are now lost. And with that, the first speculative asset bubble in history has burst. Yes, but mate, you have to remember,
0: the Dutch actually sort of learned their lesson with this. Okay, you know, the heat's gone out of the market, but they've got their tulips, and they start exporting them at reasonable prices. I mean, to the point where, you know, today, you know, Holland is still responsible for two-thirds of the world's
1: tulip exports, and let's not forget, the tulip is still their national flower. That's right, Mikey. So the Dutch did learn the lesson, but it wasn't quite the same over the water in England. Because you see, the British, they'd already got the taste for the the Dutch gin, the the cheese and, and the tulips. But now the British money men in London, they want a piece of this new pie. And that brings us to today's episode, Mikey, which is the big daddy of them all, the South Sea Bubble. A bubble that's responsible for taking down thousands of investors and, of course, keeping researchers and economists busy for generations. And not
0: just them, mate, but poets as well. I mean, by the time the whole bubble was done, Jonathan Swift had penned these wonderful words. Thus the deluded bankrupt raves puts all upon a desperate bet then plunges in the southern waves, dripped over head and ears in debt. G'day, folks. We're talking about one of the most famous economic bubbles of all time. It's the 18th century. We're talking about the South Sea bubble. Now, we should point out, too, right now, we're not talking about the Pacific South Seas.
1: No, that's right, Mikey. Unfortunately, not a bikini at all inside, is there? We're talking about the South Atlantic Sea
0: and particularly the Southern Atlantic trade in slaves between Africa and the Spanish colonies in South America. Now, before we get into this, Paul, we need to discuss the War of Spanish Succession.
1: That's right, Maggie. Yeah, so the War of Spanish Succession, 1701 to 1715, this is pivotal um, to the bubble, because at this time, Spain essentially is broken. You know, it's had centuries now of non-stop wars. And so France and the Holy Roman Emperor, they're sort of scrapping over the dead carcass with Britain sort of circling like a, a hawk around them. Now, by 1711 is the whole war's ground to a bit of a stalemate. And then when Joseph, the emperor, dies, the British government makes an offer and says, why don't we play umpire and draw up a peace treaty? Because obviously this war is going nowhere. Now, (laughs) as the architects for this peace treaty, Britain makes sure that it's going to do quite well for itself at the same time. In fact, in many ways, it's the big winner, because this is the treaty that gives... Britain, Gibraltar, and a base in the Mediterranean. And so now suddenly it controls not only everything going through the pillars of Hercules, but also the major sea lanes across the Atlantic. And it's really at this period that the old rule Britannia, um, Britannia rule the waves, really kicks off. And to be more specific,
0: Paulie, the other big winner is London because it now becomes the global headquarters for trade and finance.
1: That's right, Mikey, because the City of London, the Merchant Guilds, they use this opportunity um, to put one over their Dutch rivals in Amsterdam and and Rotterdam to take over world trade. And then in 1715, when Louis XIV dies, suddenly Britain's got an open playing field. Yes, but by this
0: stage, the South Sea Company's been going for a while. It was formed in 1711 as a joint stock company. Now, was that in anticipation of some advantage that
1: would come out of this treaty? Well, that's it. The South Sea Company is created because Britain's been told that as part of the negotiations the license to trade with the Spanish colonies is going to be up for grabs. Um, And that's the carrot that the South Sea Company dangle, if you like, to their investors. But actually, it's also just as much a front to raise as much capital as possible so they can invest that money in whichever crackpot idea comes along while they're waiting for the treaty to be signed, because they know that's going to take at least two or three years. Now, mate, I'm glad you mentioned
0: crackpot ideas because you have to remember, too, the environment at the time, you got a place called Exchange Alley which is not far from the Royal Exchange, but essentially is a very different world. Now, I'm not saying it was the black market, but to give you an example, in that alley, you've got Jonathan's Coffee House, which in 1698, it starts to list stock and commodity uh, prices. And so it becomes a hang not just for stockbrokers, but actually it becomes more of a hang for rogue traders who've been kicked out of the Royal Exchange for bad behaviour.
1: Yeah, well, that's right, Mikey. Because of course, the Royal Exchange it dates back to Elizabeth the First, doesn't it? Um, but this Exchange Alley, this has got all the the dodgy deals, if you like, round the corner, mate. You want to talk dodgy? One company floated with a prospectus to buy
0: all the bogs in Ireland. <laughs> then there was another company, mate, that had come up with the, the, the must-have military technology of the time. What matchlock pistols? <laughs> Better than that, mate. Square cannonballs. But this is my favourite. Another company launched, and this was its prospectus. The company was for carrying on an undertaking of great advantage, but no one knows what it is. And mate, this company raised £2,000 for this, and that's almost £400,000 in today's money.
1: Okay, so the Treaty of Utrecht is signed, finally, in 1714. And with that, the Spanish king promises to sell the license to the trade to the empire because the Spanish empire, all the colonies, is actually a closed shop, if you like. And I'm talking whether it's slave trade or normal merchandise. Now, France, for the past decade, they've held that license. But now the British government negotiate for the South Sea Company, to be given the licence, and to be able to make the profits from not just the slave trade with the Spanish Empire, but also the contraband goods, which captains would sneak on board to smuggle past the Spanish guards in the colonies. But in the meantime, while they've been waiting, the harebrained scheme that the directors of the South Sea Company have hit upon for all the money they raised back in the flotation of 1711 is the refinancing and restructuring of debt... And when it comes to debt, of course, Mikey, you know, the biggest debt at the time is the national debt from the crown of England. Now, usually that's all handled by the Bank of England, which is actually a private company still um, at this time. But also you've got players like the East India Company getting involved. So the South Sea Company, they see the potential not just to enter the market, but to corner that market, oust everybody else, and then suddenly exploit their position as the monopoly lender of choice. And also,
0: too, mate, in 1714, you've got a new player on the field, King George I. And and he's more than happy to play ball this lot. I mean, it's more money for the crown. In fact, his son, the Prince of Wales, George II, while he's still a prince, he becomes governor of the South Sea Company. George I, the court, the postmaster general, even George's mistresses and a few MPs, they're more than happy to cheerlead the whole enterprise in return for a few shares on the cheap and a couple of backhanders.
1: Well, that's it, maker, because they know if they get in on the ground floor, they're going to make the biggest windfall.
0: Which brings us to a bloke called John Blunt.
1: Oh, yes, John Blunt. And what a howler he was, eh, Mikey? Now, he's got quite a lot of form, even before we get to the South Sea Company, because he's one of a, a new breed, which goes by the title of Merchant Banker. <laughs> now, oh. And he's the new head of a company called the Hollow Sword Blade Company, which is sort of a, a quasi-bank that's been responsible for organising and running what effectively becomes the first ever national lottery to raise money for the government.
0: Yeah, that's right, mate. And this is what he tells potential investors in the South Sea Company, and and this is a direct quote. The greatest thing in the world is referred to you. All the money of Europe will centre among you. All the nations of the world will bring you tribute. And he promises a 100% return. I mean, mate, what could go wrong?
1: Well, for the first few years, nothing, Mikey, because the share price just rises and rises. And of course, yeah, there's more spooking from the king. It's got the royal seal of approval. The House of Lords, rubber stamps, the license. And the South Sea Company is able to issue more and more stock on the back of it because it's suddenly these guys like Blunt and his pals, they realize now the big money is not just going to come from profits from trade. It's not just going to come from profits from lending money to the crown, but it's going to come from profits from, you know, your Auntie Marge, your Uncle Joe, the good old amateur investors wanting to buy their shares, which they bought and they picked up as penny stock, but now are suddenly selling for a small fortune. Yes, mate, and this is where it gets really crooked. You
0: know, the South Sea Company is willing to lend the money to these amateur investors so they can then buy stock from the South Sea Company.
1: That's right, mate, and they also send their agents to the auctions to buy more shares and boost the price that way. You see, by
0: now, it's the beginning of 1720. And to give you an idea, in January, they were selling shares for £128. By August, it's over a £1,000 per share. Mate, this is basically Bitcoin in pantaloons.
1: That's right, Mikey. But of course, nothing lasts forever. And the market now does smell a bit of a rat. So the parliament launches an inquiry, which goes down in history as the Bubble Act. um, And it's to investigate the malpractices that are going on and also to stop any new ventures jumping in on the back of this. But of course, the South Sea Company It's got all these MPs in its pocket. So it's able to stack the committees so that there's no investigation into their malpractice. And in fact, their share price goes even higher at this because, of course, now there's no competition
0: to beat them to it. Yeah, but by now, Paulie, we're in August and people are starting to figure out the market is heading towards a cliff.
1: That's right, because in August, the next installments are due for these investors to pay for their new stock purchases. Now, of course, a lot of these investors, as you say, they're completely overexposed. They've got no liquidity. So, in fact, the only way they can pay for the installments on these new watered-down options is by selling their original gold-plated shares. (laughs) You don't need to be an economist to realise that that's not going to be sustainable.
0: And you've got terrified investors by this stage that there's a run on the bank. It's a house of cards. People are losing everything. Five
1: private banks go under. But of course, all the, the real perpetrators, they've already sold their shares and walked away unscathed. Yeah, let's not forget Blunt himself, of course, is being given massive bonuses, massive retainers. Every time there's a new round of stock going to market. Yeah, but mate, here's a good thing. There's a bit of a backlash. In fact, there's a huge
0: backlash. Eventually, Blunt will be stripped of his considerable estate. MPs will be expelled. And they even turn on the king for his backing of it. And even more so, they turn on his mistresses and one mistress in particular. And I kind of like this story. The the Countess Darlington. Now, mate, she was George's half-sister... But they were sort of uncomfortably close, and uh, she wasn't popular, and that's how rumours get started. And she was a huge promoter of the South Sea Company. Well, the story goes, she's in her carriage in London, when an angry mob surround her and start jeering and booing her. Now, before I go any further with this, she was part of that Hanoverian court that came over with George I, so she did have a rather thick German accent. I'm saying this to apologise before I even start when I do my impression of her. Which is more like Sergeant Schultz from Hogan's Heroes. Anyway, the story goes, she sticks her head out of the carriage and shouts, Good people, why do you abuse us? We only come for your goods. At which point someone in the crowd shouts out, You came for our goods and chattels as well. I believe that's what you call an early
1: Georgian mic drop. Yeah, it's hard for us to appreciate today just the sheer scale of that fallout, you know, with the the Mar and Par investors losing thousands. But it wasn't just mug punters, was it, Mikey? Because you've already mentioned Jonathan Swift. He lost some money in it. And I think that probably the most telling story involves a man who many regarded at the time and is still regarded today as the greatest mind of that age Sir Isaac Newton. Okay,
0: folks, we're talking about the South Sea bubble, the financial crash of early 18th century England, and how it involves Sir Isaac Newton. I mean, yes, the guy was the embodiment of the Age of Enlightenment, but he was also a deeply flawed human being. In fact, I reckon the best description comes from a fellow Royal Astronomical Society member, David K. Love. Sir Isaac Newton is something of a paradoxical figure. On one hand, he is an undeniable genius, on the other hand, he was a thoroughly unpleasant individual who unnecessarily made enemies and who also devoted huge amounts of time to researching what would be known today as absurd ideas of alchemy and the contents of the Bible.
1: Yeah, that's right, Mike, he is. He's famous for you know, searching for the Philosopher's Stone, isn't he? And he's also got all those weird interpretations of the Old Testament and the, the Book of Daniel... In fact, he actually predicts
0: from his reading of the Book of Daniel that the world will end in 2060. Now, I'm a little too old for that to bother me, but as a younger man, don't say Newton didn't warn you. (laughs) Love was right. Newton was. Yes, he was a genius, but he was also a misanthrope, a
1: misogynist, and he most probably died a virgin. But he was smart, wasn't he? he? And for 30 years, he was also the master of the royal mint, which is how it gets into our story. That's right, mate, because, of course, the master of the mint was
0: exactly the sort of person who the South Sea Company wanted on board and exactly the sort of person they wanted spruking their shares. So Newton was offered the opportunity to get in early, and when he sells out May 1720, he's made a whopping profit. But? But he buys back in June. In fact, June the 12th, we actually have this diary entry of Sir Isaac Newton. At the Mint did speak with Mr Hall and Mr Haynes on the vexing subject of the South Sea Company. Those good gentlemen did most earnestly speak of the merits of the company since the fortunes of the Atlantic trade are greater than is generally supposed and the risks somewhat less. Thus, shall request Dr Farquhar that he both subscribe my redeemables for the new company stock and pursue his best endeavours to purchase stock in Exchange Alley.
1: Exchange Alley, good old Jonathan's coffee house
0: again. Correct. So he buys back in June. By the time he gets out, the share price has plummeted 80%. He loses an absolute packet. But don't feel too bad for him. He still dies a very wealthy, unloved man.
1: Yeah, now I'm not sure Newton's still being rich is much of a silver lining, but there is actually one good story to come out of this, Mike, and it involves a man by the name of Sir Thomas Guy. He was a publisher, bookseller, parliamentarian at the time, and he was actually a massive sceptic of the South Sea Company, and he made a fortune through short-selling, betting against the success of the company. Now, normally, you know, short sellers, I'd say, are dead-set howlers themselves. But within the year, by 1721, this Sir Thomas Guy, he's used his newfound fortune to found London's new hospital. Oh, like Guy's Hospital, yeah, famous hospital. That's right, Guy's Hospital. That actually owes its existence to the bursting of the South Sea Bubble. And in 1724, when Sir Thomas dies he leaves the largest charitable contribution of the age to the hospital which goes from strength to strength and of course is very much still around today well, I'm glad we ended on a happy note,
0: Paul. And look, if you've got any questions about bubbles or Isaac Newton, or if you've got any good Ponzi schemes you think Paul and I would like to get in on, get in <laughs> touch.
1: Any questions, any comments, just drop us a line on all your social media Twitter, Facebook, Insta, whichever you prefer. That's right, and always the same handle, at the rest is hissed. The rest is hissed, and you'll find all that in the show notes.
0: And wherever you're listening, don't forget to like, subscribe, comment on whichever platform you happen to use. It's always good to get your feedback. Yes, yeah, keep it all coming, lots of fun, and lots of fun. To mess <laughs> and lots of new guests to look forward to. Paulie, yeah. we've got guests galore, each with their very own hero and hella.